So I want to ask you a very, um, I think, serious question. And I hope that you can hear it not as a uh, performant question, not as a question, oh, yeah, we're at church. But really just think about this for a minute. Is Christ enough? I mean, is he enough? If he's all you had, is he enough? Now, I could hear it now as you're starting to think about it, that you're reflecting on, well, God, I mean, you know, as long as I have something to eat and I have a place to live and, you know, you go on like that, a job, yeah, he's enough. That is, you know, this plus Christ. Or maybe it's, you know, the opposite. It's, it's well, Christ, as long as he adds this. But it's interesting how when we get into that sort of thinking, it seems like all the thises dominate our prayers. And it seems like all the thises dominates our lives. Christ plus this, this, and then add Christ on. I don't know which is worse. One's more of an assurance policy. The other's sort of a, you know, pretend, you know, he's the first one, but... So at least it, it, it sounds a little bit more religious, but that would probably put us closer to the hypocrites, the Pharisees, who knew how to talk the talk. You know, it's a very serious question as we come to this passage, because I've said this before, and it just grieves my heart so much to think of how we so easily miss the point of a text when we don't read it within the context of the whole of Scripture in a redemptive historical manner, this text, I've hardly ever heard it in modern Christendom-facing Christianity preach the way it historically has been preached and the way it should be understood very clearly. So I'm going to take a more rhetorical approach today, and I'm going to make sure you see why this sermon is not about your how do I say it, material necessities. This has absolutely nothing to do with bread that you eat with your mouth. Well, not exactly. It has everything to do with Christ. Let's pray. Father, help us to be open. If perhaps we have misread this passage, Help us to truly be open to see your scripture, Lord, over our minds. Help me, Lord, to be clear on behalf of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. So it's very true, uh, without a, what we call a covenantal interpretive method, understanding the Bible is not a manual about how to work and how to live life in a certain sense. I mean, certainly there's some very important implications, but, but just cannot forget that this Bible is a book about redemption. It's a book that begins with a promise and ends with its fulfillment, a promise of eternal and abundant and, uh, and flourishing life if all we would do was trust in the lordship of our creator to provide it. And of course, this book tells us the story of what people who in their original sin reject God as their ultimate Lord and Savior, reject and distrust that he truly could be sufficient enough 
the relationship with God, that becomes the core issue of this whole book that we call our Bible. And how it is that the promise of a seed of a woman who would become, therefore, this Savior King, God in the midst of us. And throughout redemptive history, everything, everything is written with him in mind. Just as the Lord said when he was on the Emmaus Road to the two strangers who didn't yet recognize him, with the law and the prophets, he revealed himself. We can't forget that hermeneutic. That was Christ's way of reading the Bible. And if we read it that way, we'll notice this. First of all, it is true that bread in the ancient Near East associated, it was associated with just the most core and basic necessities. You think of Genesis 41, and the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph had said, there was famine to every country, but throughout the land of Egypt, there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, and the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. You see what that word is used for there as a symbol of, for me to be able to eat, for me to be able to stay materially alive. It's true, and I could read more and more in Exodus 34 and Deuteronomy 8. I'll just read that one. He humbled, you. he humbled you by letting you hunger, and then by feeding you with manna, bread, with which neither you nor your ancestors were acquainted. And you could take it like that in order to make yourself understand that no one does not, that, that, that one does not live by bread alone. Now, that's interesting. He's reminding him of his provisions for, for Israel when they were in the wilderness, and then he goes and says something very prophetic. No one lives by bread alone. Hmm. What's going on with that interpretation within the Old Testament context? And so it's clear that bread is a symbol throughout Scripture of everything necessary for the preservation of this life, like food, a healthy body, good weather, houses, home, good government, peace, etc. And that's usually what we will hear a sermon about right now. That God really cares, and he does. And therefore, we need to bring to God all of our daily cares, and we do. But that's not the point. Okay, so I have some uh, challenges before me, I think. I don't know. I can't see your faces. This is horrible preaching to mouthless people. You just can't believe what you look like right now. And I don't know whether you're grimacing or you're smiling. I don't know a thing. This is just disastrous. We get all our feeding from your mouths. Don't you understand? You know, you're telling me something all the time. Anyway, we're going to go on. I'll trust the Lord is getting something through, okay? But here, let's talk about this thing again. Let's remember. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the Lord's Prayer and how it's in two parts. Part one is, interestingly, a prayer for God. Remember, sanctify thy name among the earth. Thy kingdom come from earth as it is in heaven to earth. And of course, thy will be done. It's a prayer for God to be sanctified, to be revered, to be glorified. And all of that is then focused. Remember, we saw how it's not really six prayers, it's two prayers imaging the very love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself, as you'll see in a minute, but two prayers in a way in which the second two of the first explain it. Go, it further clarifies it. Even, you could say, you know, 
Sanctify thy name, even as or through thy kingdom come, and even as thy will be done. What's his purpose in life that we're praying for? That it would be fulfilled, this purpose. Now read that through the lens of redemptive history. Through the covenantal nature of this Bible, what is all of history about? It is about God being glorified in, with, and through his church, the kingdom of God. He, Matthew makes it very clear when he speaks of the kingdom of God. He's talking about that epicenter, the kingdom of God, the church of Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, that church was Israel, even as Israel is both a civil but also a spiritual government. The Israel of God, clearly by Paul in chapter 9 of Romans, is the church, even if the true church within Israel are those who by faith in the promise of God for the Messiah but receive Christ, even if by faith in advance of him. So that the true church throughout all of redemptive history, those who actually participate in the kingdom of God are those who receive Christ. Moses received him, even as we do according to Hebrews and elsewhere. And so here's this incredible beginning that we need to come to this prayer and we were acknowledge that we've got to get our orientation back. We need a divine orientation to this prayer if we're going to understand it. The first half gives us that orientation. And yet we often go to the second part and that's the part we know the most and we talk about the most. And what do we do? We import right into it our worldliness. And by worldliness, I don't need necessarily a sinfulness. It, it is a sinfulness to it, or can be. But I mean just worldly cares. Earthly, maybe, is a better term here. We import right into it as if this is that little section. But wouldn't it be odd that in this passage, everything so far has emphasized God, his kingdom, his will, Bread, earth, and then forgiveness of sins and deliverance from evil? I mean, does that make sense to you? That there'd be this one little verse that's an anomaly within everything else that is clearly speaking of in language common to redemptive history, the very coming of the kingdom of God and salvation, where there'd be forgiveness of sins, where evil would be destroyed, and in the middle, oh yeah, pray for your daily bread. And that's probably the prayer that is most commonly understood. And we import into it all of our anxieties about this life. Something's not right here. You see, according to Peter, on everything, God may be glorified. How? Through his son, Jesus Christ. What would this passage mean if we understood it as continuing the, the theme wherein God is glorified through Jesus Christ to him belong glory and dominion forever that's the place that's the location that's where we discover the sanctification of God's holy name what now would bread be might it be the bread the very context that Christ introduces himself to later. And so following the logic of the first set of prayers, what kind of bread would bring about forgiveness? Just as we forgive others, you know, we go on, and you know, as we are forgiven, we will forgive others. 
What kind of bread would, would deliver us from evil? Now, this word evil has got an article, the evil. It could be the evil one, often used as an evil person in Matthew 5, or the evil one as in Satan himself. It's often used that way as well in Matthew 13 and elsewhere. It could even mean the evil day. I suspect in this word eschatological sense, that is in the covenantal story, where we look for the great day of the Lord, where it's, it's sort of the climax of, of the, uh, the judgment against evil ones, you could say, those who've rejected God, the evil one, Satan himself, the tempter, and then the great evil day, the day of judgment. It's all there. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, remember Jesus' prayer, but that you keep them from, and here's that word with an article, the evil. That prayer is a prayer for the church of Jesus Christ. It's a prayer of what? Salvation, redemption. And so here we have the question, what kind of bread is complementary to everything else in this prayer? And so this is where I want us to think about this prayer in comparison to the Lord's Prayer with John's account, particularly when Christ declares himself the bread of life. You see a really amazing, you know, we interpret Scripture with Scripture. We don't interpret Scripture with our experience or our emotions. Bad exegetical methods. Some people call it the isogesis, putting I into the text. We interpret Scripture with Scripture, and here's a great Scripture that sounds very familiar to the context here. It's in John chapter 6. I gave it to you as a meditation reading, if you saw it in the bulletin. It says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you carry, come here? And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate from your fill of the bread. No, what's going on here? What they wanted was to be fully satisfied. God in Christ has just shown him to be the great creator God who's capable of creating out of nothing a lot of food, a lot of nourishment, a lot of earthly need. And very clearly, this sets up a, a tension. What they wanted was to be fully satisfied with this worldly material provisions that this this miracle worker had just demonstrated. You're going to see how this text goes that will reaffirm what I'm saying here. Because here's what, what Jesus says in response to this. Show us, you know, show it, you know, this was a sign. You're going to give us everything we need. We, we want it. He says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has sent his seal. What's the bread? What did he just do? You're, you're looking for the wrong bread. The bread was a sign. That's all. The bread was to direct you with a physical object lesson of sorts to that which was of a great, great, great more valuable. The very bread of life. What do we want bread for anyway? What do we want a house for anyway? What do we want a job for anyway? What do we want to drink? You know, what do we want all this for anyway? To live. 
And yet every bit of it is not going to be enough to live. You're going to die. None of it really answers what we're really looking for. But ask yourself, what's on your mind? Daily breads. The daily breads that was on the disciples' mind in John 6. My work. Our government. Politics. Education. Money. All it goes. That's what's on our mind. We, have, we really think that we can have enough of that someday, maybe, to be fully alive. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. And what did they say back in John? Then they said to him, huh, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So think about what's happening here. So what work can I do to get this bread? Again, what kind of work do you think they're thinking about? Hey, we want you to do the same miracle again for me. What do you want me to do, Lord? I'll do it. You want me to carry something? You want me to go preach something? But I'll do whatever you want to do. But I, I want this bread, you know? Because you, they, got, they got hooked up on don't work for that which is. So I'll do some work that's eternal. But you can see in a minute, especially how they were still not getting it. Again, notice how focused they were on this life and their daily vocations that take on such great importance. And so they said to him, then what sign do you give that we may see and believe in you? If you want us to receive you as the bread of life, what sign will you give? And hey, mind you, what did he just get through doing? Y'all listening? He just got through doing the miracle of the loaves and, and for the crowds. What sign? Shows the blindness of our hearts when we won't want to hear it. And then here's what he said. Our fathers ate the manna and the... This is what they said. Hey, Jesus, give us a sign. Remember how our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness? As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Give us that sign. They're still looking for tangible bread to come down from heaven, I guess. It's incredible. They are not buying it. I wonder if we're not buying it. Oh, here goes the pastor again. He doesn't live in the real world. Might be surprising to you, but I need money too. <laughs> but, you know, pastors are in another world, or the church is in another world. Jeez, they don't understand. I mean, if they lived in my world and the anxieties of employees and employers and bottom lines and you know they don't understand this church doesn't understand I go there on Sundays it's kind of over there and it's just like in another world and yeah it's kind of nice it feels good but you know, they don't understand Jesus doesn't understand wanting to keep their focus on the material daily breads they invoke the prayer of Israel when they were in the wilderness God's answer to that prayer was manna from heaven we read it earlier it wasn't too much of God then they're thinking to provide of their material needs. Why can't you do it for me, Jesus? Sound familiar? They're thinking that Jesus is being incredibly naive to what life is about and what the real stuff of life really is that I need. You got to drink and eat and keep safe, stay healthy, sleep somewhere, all of that. That's the important stuff. Now, here's where it turns in chapter 6. 
Notice the very next thing that Jesus says. Right after this conversation I just talked to you about. He says, quote, and now he's rebuking them. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and seal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor dust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For no one can serve two masters, for either he will take the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, he says, do not be anxious. Jesus knew what was going on. This world had become too big. Stop and think about that for a minute. This world, my health has become too big in a COVID-19 world, maybe. My sense of justice, maybe that's even become too big. The world of our politics has become too big. Doesn't say it's important. Doesn't say there's a biblical response to all this. Please do not in this hyper-reactive age misinterpret me to think that we don't want justice or we don't want food or whatever it is or health. And those are valid things, even biblical things. We are bodies and bodies are sacred. The point is not that. The point is that all of that that we would look to will ultimately never satisfy what we're looking for. That's his point. Don't be anxious saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For even the Gentiles seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Notice that little thing. It's that it's Jesus' answer is it's truly intense here. To paraphrase, it's something like, Sure, of of course you need that. The stuff is important. Yes, I know, I know, I know. But your passion, your focus, your purpose, your meaning in life is not that stuff. For that stuff isn't enough. It can't be. It's going back to Babel. That's what they did. The stuff and my ingenuity was enough and resulted in the whole racism they're dealing with right now. Today I'm going to be meeting with many of the pastors around New Haven. We're going to have a prayer service and I'll be leading a part of that prayer and I'm going to use the prayer as partly to go back to Babel and to just remember the curse of our own self-righteousness that leads to all racism. It's a sad thing. We should pray against racism. We should pray against poverty. We should pray for health as much as we can pray for it, that we might be good stewards of God in this world. But, oh, it can't be our highest passion. That's Christ's point. Listen to what he says. Do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear for the Gentiles? Seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But, does anybody know the next verse? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Oh, and what about that sign that they're asking for? 
hear what Jesus says. Okay, you talk to me about a sign from the wilderness of manna. Truly, truly, now when he says that, you know, he's really going after it here. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread. Notice that, true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is, the, is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. He goes on to say, I am the bread of life. That's what you should be looking for and passionate about, making every decision about. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that Christ is, is the answer to every prayer. He's enough. If you go back to that Moses, especially, it's interesting. And again, maybe you can do it to, uh, later on in your own private devotion. Go back and read that passage that we read today about the manna in the wilderness. And you'll begin to see how Christ and even this prayer is incredibly intentional about following the language of that event. So for instance... Where did this daily bread come from? Have you ever thought about that? Well, the daily bread comes from verse 4 in, in, in the Exodus account, where it says that they are to go out and gather a day's portion every day. That is to say that we're going to live every day in dependence of God as his sufficiency and as enough for our life. The daily bread is referring to the sign in the wilderness that Christ says now is a sign which was meant to point us not to more great material abundance, but to Jesus Christ, who is the bread of life. That which we need every day to get from God from heaven. This bread is daily. This bread in that passage is from heaven. Did you notice how carefully that was rewarded in our passage of the Lord's Prayer? From heaven, this bread is what we're looking for. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation back in Exodus of the people of Israel, they looked towards the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them all, at twilight you shall eat meat, in the morning you shall be filled with bread. And what's the result? The glory of the Lord. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, from earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of heaven is, is Matthew's favorite phrase, you remember, about, about the kingdom of God or the church. Give us this day. Come now, Lord Jesus, into my life is the prayer of the Lord's prayer. Give me this day that Daily bread, that bread which is alone, sufficient, and enough for the life that all of humanity has been searching for. And where we go astray is confusing the earthly signs for the eternal truth that they point to. That the glory of God would be hallowed. So what's our take home? we need to pray 
God, help Preston. Help put your name in there. Really, give me the faith to believe that Jesus is enough. That he's enough. That I don't need to add to it this or that or this or that. And I have my this or that's that I struggle with just like you do. He's enough. And therefore, nothing should compromise Jesus. Nothing should compromise the coming of the gospel of Jesus Christ through my life. Everything my life is about. Whatever I do, wherever I go, however I do it, it is a big enough purpose in life for it to be all done as unto the Lord. Imagine that. As unto the Lord Jesus Christ. And for that to rule our every step of life. Paul would say it this way, whatever gain I had, and let's just remember what he had. He had an incredible privilege status among the academy. He had an incredible privilege status as a Roman citizen. You could call it Roman privilege. You know where that's going. He had an incredible privilege in his financial successes, particularly due to his lineage and heritage. He goes on. All of this, I count, as what? Rubbish. All of this, everything, I'm willing to lose. And in fact, he did lose all of it, really. I'm willing to lose because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. If you have not discovered that Jesus in your life, you probably haven't really discovered Jesus, not really. Now, I don't mean that you don't struggle with being true to that Jesus. I didn't say you were without sin. But something's missing if we don't understand this, the gravity of what this Lord's Prayer is about as directing all of humanity. This is the prayer of humanity from day one. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give me this bread. This daily bread. And then what comes? Forgiveness of sins, which is the release of all the curse against humanity. All the suffering, all the injustice, all the meanness. Deliver us from evil. Really? Why, why, do some people, why are some people too poor to, to live a, a good life? Because of evil, it always goes back to that. Because of selfishness in the world. Why are some people today suffering because of their race? of evil, the evil of Babel where we seek to get our sense of importance and worth by, by exalting ourselves over others, generalizing about another group of people that, in ways that makes us feel at least to be a superior culture of some sort, and it goes on and on the ways we can do this. It's evil racism. It's evil poverty. There's no excuse for it. The world's got plenty of stuff. It's evil. Deliver us from evil. That's what all of this is about. However much we want to get lost in our economic theories and our justice theories and our 
academic theories. We can go on and on and on. But look, the problem that's got to get lifted is evil. Jesus Christ, and only Christ, is enough to do that. How will this change your sense of passion in life? What sacrifice would you be willing to make? What sacrifice would you be willing to make to to participate in that epicenter kingdom of God that, that is emerging in the world but not of the world, always militant in the true sense, a kind of remnant in the world, a remnant that will come full-blown in heaven. What are we willing to do? People, some of you just became members of the church. Have you thought about what you're really doing here? And those of you who are members, Jesus is enough. I encourage you to really think about that. And I should say this because I know God loves you. What it must grieve him to see our anxieties, to see what harm we bring upon ourselves by all of this substituting Christ with other things. Let's pray.